And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the reading of the word of God. So today I'm going to give you the application of the sermon right at the start. Why wait? So the application of the sermon is, you must love God and love your neighbor. There it is. We're done. We can go home. No. Can't quite. See? The unfortunate problem is we don't know what that means. What does that look like in our day-to-day life? Well, let's turn. I want to have you turning a lot. So let's turn to Romans 13. Romans 13. Some of you are familiar with this because this is where Pastor Matt has been preaching. He's been preaching through Romans. This is page 948, if you're using the Bible in front of you, 948. And the passage he just preached last week is Romans 13, 8 through 10. So I'll read that for you. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery... You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Uh, We can also turn to Exodus 33. So this is page 74 in your pew Bible. Exodus 33. Exodus 33, verses 15 to 23, we see what God's heart is. What is God's heart? What is at the very center of who God is? Exodus 33, 15 to 23, he says, And he, that is Moses, said to him, that is God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people Israel? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness, all my goodness, pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, 
Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God's heart is love and mercy. And in this passage, that is demonstrated by his turning his back from Moses, so that Moses is not harmed. So we turn back to Luke. Back to Luke. Luke is 869 in the Pew Bible. Uh, Luke 10, 25. So the text. So we're going to start. We're going to go verse by verse. Um, and we're just going to hear what God has to say today to us. Um, the first verse. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life, eternal life? Uh, the word here for lawyer, it's, it's similar to our current lawyers of today, but it's, it also implies a religious function. Lawyers in ancient Israel were both religious and civic leaders, and that's because the, the ancient Jewish law covered both civic and religious matters. So he's an expert in the law. But he stands up to put Jesus to the test, it says. And the word test here is not just a test you might take in school. The word test implies an explicit challenge to one's honor. So this lawyer is coming and he's, he's explicitly saying, Jesus, I'm going to question you. And in the Jewish tradition of that day, um, this is what the scribes did. They questioned each other, and your honor uh, was determined by how you answered. Um, what does he question him? He questions him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So not only is this a challenge to Jesus' honor, but this is the content of this challenge is one of the most important matters, monumental, eternal life. Jesus' answer, the stage is set for a very important answer. How Jesus answers will determine his honor. So the next verse, verse 26, it says, He said to him, what is written in the law? This is Jesus' response. How do you read it? Now, Jesus has a tendency to answer questions with questions, right? That's what he likes to do. And so his question here turns it back on the lawyer in two ways. He asks the lawyer, what is written in the law? Lawyer, demonstrate for me if you know what is written in the law. Do you know what it says? So there's a content also challenge back to this lawyer. But he also says, how do you read it? And what that meant in that context was, it's, it's, it's the verbiage, the wordage that the scribes used back and forth. And so Jesus is, is somewhat helping the lawyer be comfortable, but also establishing his own honor by saying, I know your conventions, I can speak according to those. How do you read it? He's answering like a scribe, but he's also testing the lawyer and saying, do you know the law? Verse 27 and he answered the lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer here is demonstrating his knowledge of the law. He quotes two verses, and we're going to turn to those. So first turn to Deuteronomy 6. That's page 151 in the Pew Bible. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, 
and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the lawyer here is demonstrating his knowledge by quoting one of the most famous passages of the law, the Shema as it is called. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Okay? But he also quotes Leviticus 19, 18. So turn, if you would, to page 98 in the Pew Bible, Leviticus 19, verse 18. The lawyer's answer here is twofold. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, but he also quotes Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Okay, so the lawyer, in his response to Jesus, quotes two distinct passages, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he puts them together. And his answer is succinct, um, and, and his answer expresses totality. You are to love Yahweh with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Hebrew, oftentimes, they would say something that is two things that are opposites, and that means totality, the whole thing. Separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. That means the sins will be very far away. So the whole person must love God. So turn back to Luke, page 869, and uh, we see Jesus' response to the lawyer. He says to him in verse 28, And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Um, There's a part of the Jewish uh, text, the Jewish interpretive text, that says this, Study of the law is of higher rank than actually practicing it. That's something that the Jewish text says. So Jesus' answer, uh, it, it, it acknowledges the, the lawyer's correct answer, but also stands in, contra- in contradiction to something in this man's own tradition, which is, don't just study it, practice it. Very important. Jesus says, do this. His focus is not too much on the fact that his answer was correct, but says, do this and you will live. Uh, and, and what we are to see from this is that the lawyer correctly understands, according to Jesus, where and how do you get eternal life. So the lawyer understands this is how you get eternal life. You love God and you love your neighbor. So that's what the meaning of this text is. That's the point of all of this. Love God and love your neighbor. But we still don't really know what that means. So we have to come back and we have to uh, come back to the text and we see that the lawyer is there with us. The lawyer doesn't say, oh, that makes sense. Okay. And he goes away and he understands. No, the lawyer also doesn't understand. So we are with the lawyer at this point in the text. We must know exactly what it means to be a neighbor. We must be able to recognize neighbors around us. How do we do this? Well, let's get back to the text. Verse 29. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay. The word here, justify, It means to pronounce righteous. There's a legal connotation in the text here. So this person, this lawyer, is seeking justification, which tells us a couple things. One, he is not content with what Jesus has answered to him. His heart is not content with the answer Jesus has given, which, you might notice, is the very answer that the lawyer provided. Jesus simply turned that back. But the man is not content. Something is off in his heart. He feels as if something is not quite right and he needs justification. So, we move on. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, 
who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. A couple interesting facts about this verse. Uh, Jerusalem and Jericho are two cities of only 13 that are mentioned in both the New and Old Testaments. So these are well-known cities. And as such, there's a path that goes between them that is also well-traveled. It's a well-known path. But you see, there's something very interesting about this path. Jerusalem, as you might know, is on a mountain. Jericho is at the foot of the mountains. Jericho is down in the Dead Sea Valley, in the the arid regions, very far south. Um, Northeast, but down, is what I'm saying. And so Jerusalem is up here, and Jericho is down here. You actually, by going from Jerusalem to Jericho, you descend 3,000 feet. 3,000 feet. Okay? And it's about a 20-mile journey. So that you're thinking Grand Rapids, okay, and then you drive out to Muskegon, but Muskegon is 3,000 feet elevation difference. So you're constantly swallowing and popping your ears as you go. That's what you're looking at. Okay? And this is a 20-mile a, a roadabout. Um, the town of Samaria, uh, we're going to come to later talk about a Samaritan, that town of Samaria is north about 60 miles. So as far as geographically how you're thinking about this, um, uh, close your eyes maybe, it helps me at least, and you can picture Grand Rapids is, is up north compared to these other two cities. Grand Rapids can be Samaria, and then you have Holland and you have Battle Creek. Holland and Battle Creek would be Jerusalem and Jericho. So the path here, okay, that's, that's, that's our geographical context. Okay, so what did Jesus say? Well, let's, let's analyze what Jesus says. He says, a man. The subject of his story is a man. It doesn't tell us anything about this man. No identification, personally, demographically, ethnically. So it's very interesting. We have to remember that. Jesus does not say he's Jewish. Some of the readers assume, and hearers might assume that he's Jewish, but he doesn't say that. So we have to keep that in mind. But, but not only that, Jesus says he was stripped, beaten, and left half dead. So here's an important point. Even if he was Jewish, you might not be able to tell. You might not be able to tell, okay? Even if he's Jewish, you might not be able to tell. Um, Isaiah 53 says that when Jesus was beaten, he was almost unrecognizable, unrecognizable, disfigured. So um, almost all the normal reasons you might help someone are gone. Think about it. Uh, I might help my wife if I see that she's in trouble. I might help someone that I know because I know them. I have a personal connection. If you're beaten and disfigured and left for half dead, those personal reasons to help someone might not be prevalent. Just keep that in the back of your mind. So, the people are on this path, this man, and then he gets beaten by robbers, and he's going downhill. So he's going downhill. It's arid. If you've been there, you know that uh, there's, a, there's a, a highway that goes from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea, and as you're going down it, it's kind of eerie because there's no trees, there's no greenery, it just becomes rock, and you're kind of going down, and the rocks are there because you're carving the rock. It's very eerie. So verse 31, verse 31, let's keep going back to the text. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He passed by on the other side. Priests are people who, in the Old Testament, were charged with being ceremonially clean, but they must become ceremonially clean and stay ceremonially clean before they serve in the temple. The temple's in Jerusalem, so the temple's back where he's coming from. So what we do know from the story is that he's not going to the temple. He's not going to the temple to serve, okay? So if he was going to the temple to serve, you might say, okay, he has to stay ceremonially unclean. He has to stay ceremonially clean. 
he's not going to get himself ceremonially unclean before he serves in the temple. Maybe he has a good motive. But he's not headed to the temple. Uh, what we also know about priests, according to the Jewish tradition, is they had a specific duty, this is very telling, to bury human corpses. That was their job. That required becoming unclean. Uh, so, you could imagine that the priest passes along as far as possible, hoping that the man might not die before he passed. If the man were to die, the priest would be obligated by the law to go to the man and bury him and become unclean. For the priest, he was following Pharisaical tradition and was only obligated to action if the corpse was actually dead. If he passed along on the far other side, the chances that he would find out the man was actually still alive were much lower. Move quickly, you might imagine him saying. Keep your head down. Don't look over there. He might still be alive, and I might be obligated no longer to stop and bury the corpse. Let's hope he's still alive. Now that's speculation, but it helps you put puts in your frame of mind what's going on here. Okay, the next verse. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Again, this is probably not a demographic decision. In other words, he's probably not making this decision because he hates the person. Levites are specifically tasked with caring for the orphans and widows and for sojourners. So you might think that he would stop, but he does not. He is bound by duty to bury the dead, just like the priest, but uses that pharisaically. Perhaps you might say the Levite says, see, he isn't dead yet. If he was dead, I would have to bury him. But since he isn't, I don't have to stop. In fact, for, for Levites, even to step on the shadow of a dead person was to be considered unclean. So you see the Levite also passing far over on the other side. Next verse, 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, if I start a sentence like this, a priest, a minister, and a blank walk down the street. What goes in the blank? Rabbi. You know that rabbi comes. Or if I say, a brunette, a redhead, and a, a blonde. Okay, You know that. Because there's a certain pattern in our culture of the way we have a certain way of telling this joke or, or saying. There's the exact same thing in Jewish culture. In fact, it was common to start a saying this way. A priest, a Levite, and a... No, not Samaritan. In Jewish culture, the tale was, the saying was, a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. Now, why would you say that? Well, a lot of the Jews in that day could also see some of the ways the Pharisees were nitpickers about rules and arguing about what things meant, almost like you might think of a philosopher today, is always arguing about useless things. And so they would make this saying, a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. And in the tale, the priest fails, and the Levite fails to do what they're supposed to. But the Israelite, the common man, the simple old, not religious expert, does what's right. So, so the, the hearers of this are actually aware with this context and this, and this structure, and they're waiting to hear Israelite. But that's not what they hear, is it? They hear Samaritan. Okay, get back to the Bible here. We're going to go to John 4, verse 9. John 4, John chapter 4, verse 9.
And this is a story about Jesus. And he happens to be in Samaria. He's talking to a woman who is a Samaritan. But in the context of this, I'll just read verse 9. He, she says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then it says, parentheses, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. End parentheses. Okay? So this tells us that the Jews and the Samaritans are not friends. Okay? They're not pals. They're not buddy-buddy. Okay? But here we get Samaritan. Okay? So if anyone was kind of listening to Jesus as he's saying this, now they're very much listening to Jesus. They're very much keyed in. Okay? But let's take note to what the text says, or more importantly, what it doesn't say. And the Samaritan, when he saw him, passed on the other side. Okay, that's obvious. Then the saying would have no import, no strength. It also doesn't say, when the Samaritan saw him, he turned and went back. It also doesn't say, when he saw him, he stopped and waited. But here's, what, here's the most important thing it doesn't say, and I want you to understand this. It doesn't say, when he saw him, he went to the man. It doesn't say, when he saw him, he went to the man. What does it say? When he saw him, he had compassion. Okay, that's not an action. That's not a thing you do. Having compassion is a possession. It's something you have. There's no action. Comes, sees, has. Okay? What does that mean? What the other people do is actions. But this, this, this Samaritan just has something. So is this compassion a choice? What does it mean that he has compassion? Well, the Samaritan didn't choose to feel compassion. He could not help that he felt compassion. The Samaritan, upon seeing the man, began to feel a deep, powerful emotion within him. The compassion on his part was not a choice. It was a natural heart reaction. It was a natural heart reaction. Okay, we're going to come back to that. Remember that. Okay? So let's, let's take a second and compare. How, how is this instance with the Samaritan the same as the priest and the Levite? They all see the man. They all see the man. The text tells us they all see the man. How is it different? The first two walk around, and the Samaritan, from the text, we can say, doesn't move yet, but has compassion. So something different happens. Okay, back to the text, verse 34. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. After his compassionate feeling, he made a decision. This is an important point. Now let's pause for a second. When it says you see the man, what does that mean? Well, we don't know from the text how far he is from the body. Okay? But we know it's far enough to get an understanding of what's going on. Okay? And what has taken place. Okay? Which means we need to go to our senses for a second. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Okay? And I want you to stand there. I want you to see this. Bloodied corpse. Okay? Sorry if this is, this is going to get visceral. Okay? Blood on the ground pooling around the body. Okay? You're hearing an eerie silence. Remember? There's no greenery. Okay? You've been going downhill. Okay? You're going through a, a dead, arid region. Dry, desert, eerie silence. Maybe pebbles every once in a while bouncing into caverns. And there's this pervasive fear of robbers that you could say is so strong you might feel it yourself. A fear of robbers, okay? Might be anywhere. In fact, by seeing this person, you know they were here. 
literally, and might still be waiting by to help, uh, I mean, to pounce on a helpful stopper by. Smell. You smell flesh, open wounds. You smell iron, perhaps. Uh, sunburnt flesh, gut-wrenching, devastatingly putrid. It's thundering into your nostrils and airways, and it's unavoidable. Taste. Maybe the smell is so sordid that you can even taste the iron in your own mouth, and you definitely probably taste something coming up from within you in the back of your throat. Okay. And touch, however, is something that the Samaritan does not share with the priest and Levite because something different happens. All three of these men see the man and know exactly what going near him would entail. When you truly see the situation, you know what it entails all at once. You don't have to get close to know what it entails. Okay? And I really want to make this important point. None of the three men like smelling putrid flesh. None of the three men like uh, binding wounds, necessarily. Um, yeah, I didn't know if I was going to go, but my wife is excellent and amazing, and she worked on a floor where you did a lot of gross stuff. She worked, and she cared for people, and it's not pleasant, okay? It's not pleasant. So all three of them know what it entails and do not, in their own nature and in their personhood and normal humanity, want to be around that, okay? But that's not the only thing in the Samaritan that's going on. The Samaritan had compassion. And what do we see comes after compassion? Look back at the verse and pay attention to the verbs. Went, bound, poured, set, brought, took. That's going into other verses. But the point is that the Samaritan did in fact go over and in so doing made a conscious choice about his life in spite of all the reasons why he might not. I guarantee you the Samaritan did not enjoy smelling all that blood. Though he did enjoy, he did, he did not enjoy walking all the rest of the way to Jericho. And he did not wake up that morning wishing he could risk a disease in the middle of nowhere, risk his animal getting the disease. A part of him was very desirous not to go near the man, but to pass on the other side. So don't forget what he was choosing against. Okay. Let's pause. So application here. Remember, we're trying to love God and love neighbor. That's the whole point of what we're doing here, right? So let's, let's circle back. Love God, love neighbor. What do you need? Two things. You have to see the person. You have to see their need. You have to know what it entails, okay? And you have to choose. You have to choose to step in and help the person in need. So remember those verbs, okay? All right. Back to the text. Verse 35. The next day he took out the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So what do we see here? We see two things. One, the Samaritan diverted his own plans and stayed a whole night in this inn just to take care of the man and make sure he was getting better. He was generous, and he gave money to the innkeeper to take care of him longer. But two, I want to briefly touch on this point. The Samaritan also demonstrated tact and shrewdness in caring for the man with how he interacted with the innkeeper. Should we always love our neighbors blindly and be extravagant and even reckless in our giving to others, risking our own life and limb? Maybe. But remember, Scripture says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. For example, let's, let's, let's look at the second half of 35. Take care of him, and whatever I spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What if the innkeeper isn't as compassionate as the Samaritan? What if the Samaritan leaves and then the innkeeper says, you know what, I'm kicking this guy to the curb and keeping the money 
because he's taking up a bed. I can make more money. What if the man doesn't get better fast enough? And this, the innkeeper is like, well, I've tried, but two days, I'm just going to take him to the curb. So look at what the Samaritan actually did. He demonstrated his own trustworthiness. He stayed a full night. Okay? That's showing the innkeeper how to care for someone. Okay? He also gives him money, also demonstrating his trustworthiness. Okay? Okay? But then what does he do? He calls upon the innkeeper, three, to be trustworthy himself. And he says, you know what? Join me in this care. Join me in this care, okay? But then four, okay, here's, here's what he does, four. He demonstrates kindness and generosity and subtly encourages the innkeeper to join into this mutual relationship of care by promising to come back and check in on the man and the situation. He promises, when I come back, notice. He says, when I come back. He doesn't say when, okay? So the innkeeper, having seen all the trustworthiness of this Samaritan, probably believes that he's going to come back. Okay, and so he's like, that guy's going to come back. And by, by subtly putting that in there, um, he ensures that the innkeeper will take care of this man. Yeah, a good example of this is also 2 Corinthians 8, when Paul's writing to the churches. He's very subtle in the way he encourages them to join into this mutual care of giving money to people. He's very tactful in that. But we're almost to the end. Verse 36. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Jesus says. He's finished his long parable, long in comparison to the rest of the text. And we get back to the question asking. Okay? In the midst of all of this, it's all setting up for Jesus to simply ask a question back. That's what he does. He asks questions back. Notice how in the way Jesus poses this final question, he places the lawyer in the place of the wounded man who needed help. The lawyer started by asking Jesus who his neighbor was. But Jesus says, who is the neighbor? Who is a neighbor? Not, who is your neighbor? For the lawyer, neighbors were people that were outside of yourself, in relation to you, my kind of people. Okay? But for Jesus, a neighbor is much more someone that you need to be. It's far less about looking for a neighbor around you and becoming one. But we still don't really know how to get compassion. We've learned that we, we know that we have to love God and love neighbor. We have to love our neighbor properly. We can't just do it fake. Uh, but what does this mean? How do we get compassion? The Samaritan didn't just say, oh, I see this guy. I think I need to be compassionate. Or let's start practicing compassion. Or let's start developing compassion experiences. No, it said he had compassion. Okay? His sight triggered and tapped into something that was already within him, his compassion. So what struck up for the Samaritan this compassion? Sight. Jesus tells us that he, the Samaritan, saw the man lying down, stripped, beaten, and half dead. This compassion was stirred in him as a result of seeing the man what was already within him was struck alive like deep, hot embers in a fire, which burst into flame when stoked or when blown upon. Now, if the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts, we can have the same compassion on others, but we must do one thing. We must do one thing. Only the Holy Spirit can soften our heart, but he does it in one way. Jesus' passion. Jesus a real human being experienced death on a Roman torture device known as a cross. 
his death, was painful and excruciating, and it's referred to as his passion. The word compassion can be broken down into two parts. The prefix com is Latin, it means with. And the second half is passion, and it means passion. Okay? And it means with passion. That's what compassion is. We can be true neighbors to others only if we have already been deeply steeped in seeing the man. Spending time with his passion, making us compassionate. The last verse. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Okay, a couple thoughts here. The lawyer doesn't even say Samaritan. Okay? We're kind of tracking his heart here. Only Jesus sees the heart perfectly, but he's wrestling. He's struggling. He sees the answer, but his heart, I mean, he can't even say Samaritan. He says, the one who shows mercy. Okay? And again, Jesus doesn't really give an answer. He just holds up a mirror. Shows you your heart. When you pray to him sometimes, and you have something against someone else, you're like, man, please change that person. God, Holy Spirit, the end of the prayer, if you're sincere, it's like, wow, I'm really selfish. You know, it's, it's, he turns it back on yourself. So, what comes next? Another lawyer question, right? No, it doesn't come. The pattern would suggest it's time for the lawyer to ask a question, but he doesn't. The lawyer leaves this interaction realizing the true situation. He realizes what it really means to love God and love neighbor. And he realizes that in order to be a true neighbor, you have to get smelly, and you have to get bloody, and you have to get gross, and you have to overcome ethnic and demographic restrictions, and you have to be uncomfortable. And in reality, the lawyer's like a man on the road. He's seen something, and is faced with a decision. Okay, all three of the men realized. They saw and they realized. Okay, it's my last page of notes, so don't worry. We're good. We're almost there. Okay. So, we have to love God and we have to love neighbor. That's, the, that's, that's what I gave you at the very beginning is the point of all of this. How do we do it? We see the man. We look to Jesus, the man stripped, beaten, and crucified. And in so doing, we are changed into compassionate people. The more we look upon that mangled man, the more we will have compassion. And the more we do so, the more we will have compassion for those in need around us. If you do not have compassion for those around you, uh, then you have not been looking into Jesus' face. And if you simply do not have any compassion for others, then you might never have seen his face. You might not have seen him dying for you on the cross. Or even worse, you do see him, but look on that experience, that passion, that death, with cold indifference, apathy, or disgust. Only those who truly love God and love neighbor will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the first verse says. But we know now, only those who see Jesus crucified, look into his face and have compassion, and go to him like the Samaritan, will be capable of true compassion, and by extension, loving their neighbor. Therefore, only those who see and know Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't continue to distance yourself from this man. He was broken for you, and all you must do is go to him. Gingerly uh, avoid, gingerly go to him, his broken, bruised body. And if you go to him, 
then when you are wounded, truly, deep down, he will come to you in your time of need and save you. What galvanized the Samaritan to truly love his neighbor was compassion. So pray for the Holy Spirit to soften your heart, give you more compassion, and look upon the God-man, Jesus, in his passion, his anguish, blood running down his forehead, cheeks, and dripping off his chin, groaning, hanging on the cross, nails through his palms and feet. You see the man. Will you cross and go on the other side? Or will you go to the side of the cross? Thank <laughs> you.